On this episode, everything you ever wanted to know about DPF and after-treatment system maintenance. I'm Jim Park, and this is HDT Talks Trucking, Season 6, Episode Number 1. Even after 15 years, after-treatment systems remain major headaches for many fleets. They're mission-critical maintenance items, but there are few reliable guidelines on when those systems need to be serviced. The likelihood of an after-treatment system failure seems to be inextricably linked to the urgency of the mission. We've got two guests on this episode who can help make sense of those systems. They'll explain what can go wrong with them and reveal how to look after them. Our journey to after-treatment system enlightenment begins right after this. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place August 25th through August 27th at the Scottsdale McCormick Ranch in Scottsdale, Arizona. Visit HeavyDutyTruckingExchange.com to learn more. We're talking today with Steve Hoke, the president of Diesel Emission Service in Redding, California, and his partner in crime, Steve Stratton, otherwise known as Junior. He's the warranty and training manager at DES. These guys are allegedly experts on DPFs and all things after treatment, so let's uh, let's dig into it. Good morning to you two gentlemen. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks, Jim. Doing good. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. We've uh, We've been dealing with after treatment systems for going on 15 years now. You'd think we've had, we'd have this figured out, but apparently they still cause all kinds of grief and nightmares for fleet managers. Before we start talking about cleaning and, you know, all the other stuff that we have to cover in this podcast, can we talk about the problems? I mean, why are we having all those problems still after all these years? Well, we believe that it's a lack of training and support from the OEM, mainly because they really don't want independent shops or the fleets doing the work. They want the vehicle brought back to the dealer Back when pre-emissions vehicles had uh, diesel mechanics to troubleshoot um, off known smoke issues, black smoke, blue smoke, gray smoke, with the 2007 and newer vehicles, these mechanics had to become technicians and really learn and understand the newer technology to be able to diagnose the systems. As far as the DPF or after treatment, in 2007, fleets were kind of thrown into a tailspin with downtime and costs attributed to the after treatment system. And they, they were not insignificant either, those costs and downtime no but they had they had a belief that the oem or the vehicle make that they had purchased um would keep them in the loop for training would keep them in the loop for how to what their service intervals should be instead of really what they were sold which you know in 2007 almost every truck manufacturer engine manufacturer basically said look the after-treatment systems are going to last 500,000, 600,000 miles. Don't worry about them, which, as we found out over the years, was uh, a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, and I think that five or 600,000-mile interval wasn't or didn't apply to most fleets. They were probably the over-the-road, long-haul, um, you know, steady-state operation as opposed to the, the refuse trucks and the city P&D trucks and the dump trucks and the cement mixers. <laughs> who were running anything but, you know, steady state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Duty cycle um, for the vocational trucks uh, made it very more difficult on the after treatment system um, to operate properly. Any idea, any thoughts on on why that happened? I mean, the OEMs must have known going into this, even as far back as 2007, 
what was going to happen. Well, that for me, that's a. I mean, the easy answer for me on that is um, pre two thousand two thousand two to meet emissions numbers that were needed before. Um, they really made the engine do all the work in 2000, 2002, when they EPA had lower NOx standards. Um, really, they made a lot of decisions, retarding timing. Um, Junior can talk about some other stuff, but they, they ended up, the engine parts were not lasting what the fleets were used to. Uh, the cylinder pressure, the cylinder temperatures, um, the issues that the, the, the changes they made to the engine um, were short and longevity. So in 2007, or working up to 2007, the engines basically got to go back to a freer state or a better efficiency running, and then everything that went out the tailpipe, the after-treatment would deal with. So the, the engines got back to um, the million-mile number that they strived for um, without parts wearing out quickly or sticking cylinders or, or having cylinder temperature issues. Yeah. It was really a lot more than just bolting on a trash can, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. The DPF is the one that seems to still cause most of the problems. Is is the problem with the DPF itself, it's like, or is it more of a canary in a coal mine where it's uh, like a tire sort of showing up and revealing all the problems that exist elsewhere in the system? Well, for me, it's real simple. You know, the DPF only does two things. It catches soot and stores ash. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, Jim... The way I look at, I'll give you an analogy. Um, everybody likes baseball, right? I like baseball. Um, I understand baseball better than after treatment systems. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hopefully by the end of this analogy, you'll see that they're very similar. Okay. But when we watch a baseball game, uh, who's in charge of the baseball game? Yeah, I'd right? say the pitcher or the catcher. They are they are running the game, but the manager is essentially responsible for the game, right? Okay. The question is, is who does the manager rely on? He relies on the catcher, right? The catcher sends and receives the messages, telling him how the pitcher's doing, telling him what's going on in the game, letting him know if he needs to make a change, right? Uh, if the pitcher's throwing junk, he's going to relay that information to the manager and get the issue corrected. Think about the manager as the ECM or the ACM, after treatment control module. The, pitch, uh, the pitcher is the engine and the catcher's the DPF, Okay. The DPF's job is to catch everything the engine's throwing at it. When the engine throws too much, it sends a signal to the ECM saying, hey, we got to do something. Something's wrong. The ECM looks at the parameters and it makes a decision. It decides what's the best course of action. Is it to go into regen, oxidize soot, store ash, or is it to go into D-rate? There's a much bigger problem going on. How are we going to resolve this, right? It, it's... A lot like the manager of the baseball game, right? He's going to decide when to pull the pitcher or when to let him work out his issues on his own, mm -hmm. right? Yep. The way I like to think about it is you're never going to see a catcher get replaced in a game unless he gets run over by a base runner or he gets hurt, right? And the DPF is the same exact thing. You should never have to change that DPF unless the engine throws something at it that it can't handle and it gets hurt. Okay. Brilliant analogy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So with that said, we hear fleets, I hear fleets anyway, uh, when I talk to them, they say that, you know, they're running into too many regens or they're having to tow trucks back to the yard because, you know, it's derated. 
or uh, you know, there's some other circumstance there that's mission limiting. Why does it get to that stage? Is it a fault with the machinery, the DPF, the system, or is it uh, somehow that the fleet failed to take notice of the uh, warnings that the components were sending them? It's it's a culmination of all of those things. It's a culmination of duty cycle, lack of maintenance, and neglect. Okay. Right? And then and then also there are the rare occasions where there's an actual after treatment system failure. Right. So there are basically or four types of regeneration. So if they're having regen if issues, let's break down those regions and see which one they're doing and then kind of why. So the first type of region is passive. Passive regeneration occurs on vehicles as they're driving down the road with no operator interaction. There's no hydrocarbon fuel dosing. It, the exhaust temperatures are hot enough to oxidize soot on their own. Okay. The second type of regeneration is an active region. An active region is where the vehicle's driving down the road. The pressure differential increases, so the DPF is loading with soot or ash. It doesn't know the difference. It's loading. It says it, It's seeing those signals and says, okay, hey, all of our parameters are met for regen, but it's not hot enough to passively regen. Let's dose fluid. Let's dose hydrocarbons, oxidize that soot, create heat for regen, decrease our pressure differential, and get that truck running without the operator's interaction. The only way the operator would know that that's inactive regen is if the uh, HEST light comes on on the dash, okay? HEST, what does that mean? uh, HEST is high exhaust system temperature. Okay. Okay, and it's actually labeled HEST on on the majority of the sun visors. If you flip it down and look at the after treatment stuff, (laughs) it'll say- Whoever does that. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the, the third region- is a stationary region. So a stationary region is when the vehicle, it can't passively regen. It, it doesn't have the ability or it hasn't met the parameters to actively regen. So it tells the driver, hey, you need to do a stopped stationary region uh, by pushing a button on the dash. Okay, And that's going to run a region long enough again, to get the pressure differential down so that it can move along down the, down the road. And generally stationary regions are not timed. It's all based off, it's all based off pressure. Okay. Okay. But the driver is parked. They're they're not moving anywhere while this is happening. Exactly. The truck is parked and no one's moving. Okay. And then the, the last region is a forced region. A forced region is, Hey guys, we weren't able to passively regen. We're not able to actively regen. Stationary regen isn't working. So we have to plug into it with a laptop and make this system go into regen. Generally, a forced regen is because either A, the vehicle's not getting up to high enough road speed for active regen, or there's an engine condition that is limiting its ability to go into active regen, like fault code. Yeah. So in real life then, drivers have delivery pressures, they have time pressures, they don't want to be sitting on the side of the road for 15 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes while this um, forced regen occurs, or so the uh, stationary regen occurs. Are they inclined to ignore that? Apparently they are, and and just keep going, which what, makes things worse, plugs the DPF up even further? Absolutely. 
kind of think of it like uh, I like to think of it kind of like this. Diesel engines are essentially big air pumps. Okay, so if you, you need good clean air in to get good clean air out, right? Yep. The air that if the air in is restricted, the if the air out is restricted, our air in is restricted. So neglect on either end could cause DPF related issues. <laughs> okay, so let, let's talk about best case scenario and and then some of the things that can go wrong. If if the truck's in a good duty cycle, uh, like we talked about earlier on highway running fairly high exhaust temperature, uh, uh, passive regens and perhaps an active regen are possible while the truck is driving. What would, what happens when you get into situations like a high idle application or a high transient application like refuse trucks or something to that effect where there just isn't enough time for the system to uh, get up to operating temperature and stay there? What's, what's the likely outcome of that type of application? More regens, more stationary or forced regens how, how does the system cope with that so passive region uh passive region doesn't use diesel fuel to oxidize soot it's using the exhaust temperature right yeah yep. active stationary and forced all use diesel fuel and again passive is generally what we're going to see in on highway heavy duty that's that's moving large loads right the the stationary region is geared more towards the light medium duty application or um uh what's what's the word i'm looking for the the guys that sit idle in parking lots and 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 those kinds of things where they're not or sitting in traffic where they're not make getting up to speed or making temperatures yeah anytime an engine is actively regenerating whether it's active stationary or forced it is potentially loading the vehicle or the, the the DPF with ash and soot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Because the duty cycle is ever changing. So the way I look at it is if the vehicle is parked or excuse me, sitting at idle often, that's what stationary regions for. If the engine is parked with engine issues or it's neglected, that's what forced region is for. And active is just there to maintain and, and make sure that it can do it. Yep. Okay, so if a fleet manager is aware, which they probably are, that they've got one of those applications that's more susceptible to uh, frequent regens, would they initiate some of those regens on their own if they could or had the opportunity to, like when a truck comes back in off a day's run or if it's coming in for its PM? Can they take steps to encourage that process or... Does their maintenance software provide them with a history of the number of regens that are happening so that they can take proactive responses to this situation? Um, that is a great question. That's why they and pay me the big bucks. <laughs> I, I will I will speak, um, not ma- engine manufacturer specific, but there is one manufacturer that I know of for sure that gives you the history of the previous 10 regions. So you can look, in, look at the history and see how often that vehicle is going into region and you can create a proactive approach for uh, stationary regions or forced regions. So if you know your vehicle needs a region every 12 hours, you can set up a program to where it, your technician puts it into region every 10 hours to keep it from derating when it's on the road. Right. Okay. Yep. So there are engine manufacturers that do allow that. And, and some fleets take advantage of that. 
and the majority of them do not. I, I would guess, uh, and it's only a guess, that you'd need to be a relatively sophisticated fleet manager and have a good sort of uh, management system behind you to, to point you in that direction. If you were a smaller operation, I don't want to say less sophisticated, but smaller and maybe don't have access to that, uh, that sort of software, can you, are, are you left out in the dark as to when your trucks are doing this? Do you have to figure it out for yourself? You, you're not left out in the dark. You just have to kind of use all your senses, uh, so to speak, which is when your driver calls and he's down on the road every third day, you're on the road every third day. Maybe we need to think about that and, and put it into region on day two or, or figure out how come you're only getting three days between regions. It should be quite a bit longer than that. So they just need to kind of open their eyes to the systems and, and not just automatically assume it's a, it's a, it's a dang DPFs problem. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, if I had a fleet of trucks that was having a downtime issue or a D-rate issue every week, every month, I would be digging into the diagnostic side to find out why. Do I have uh, opacity issues on the engine? Do I have uh, DOC temperatures that are not conducive to to create a passive regen? Do I have a DPF that is plug-centered, no good? Do I have an after-treatment? Do I have an SCR system issue? Because theoretically, unless you are stop-and-go delivering ice cream, milk, different cartages in downtown New York or San Francisco, the normal use of that vehicle should be, um, should be able to support either passive regens or active regens without your knowledge. Yep. And what about, I mean, this is all sort of highly affected by temperature, exhaust temperature mostly. What about ambient temperature? Do, do fleets in colder climates see more of these sorts of problems than, uh, ones where, you know, the temperatures, the ambience are off. 80, 90 degrees most of the time? You, you do see some differences and some, there are some challenges there. Um, if you look at an after-treatment system, like the, the, the overall components, you'll see that the DOC is insulated, the DPF is insulated, the piping is insulated, Okay, the SCR catalyst is typically insulated. There are some areas on that system that are not insulated, which are the clamps, the flanges where they mount together, that's also where we get leaks. So areas where there are colder climates, you can see an issue with the after-treatment and regeneration if it's not properly maintained or um, excessively cold, if you will. Okay. Let me throw one more thing in there real quick while I'm thinking about the cold weather application. The the fleets that deal in colder climates um, have learned a valuable lesson that preheating the engine um, actually lowers their after-treatment issues as well because the dirtiest time a diesel engine is is at cold startup. Um, the people that use the preheaters and, and can have their vehicle more at the 160, 180 degrees when they go to fire it up are already starting up with a warmed engine, cleaner emissions right off the bat. That would be helpful, I would think. Get some, get some up to that operating state faster. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, before we get into cleaning and, and solving these problems, just want to clarify one more thing. You mentioned two substances that uh, wind up in DPFs, ash and soot. Uh, what's the difference? Uh, okay, so ash comes ash is ash comes from lube oil and fuel additives. Okay, diesel engines when they're not at proper operating temperature can can and do uh, bypass oil. Oil bypasses the rings and it has to go somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Where is that somewhere? 
Right into the trash can. <laughs> Downstream into the after-treatment system. Exactly. So ash is comes from the engine, bypassing the rings when the engine's not operating properly or there's a, a major engine failure. There's always a little bit of ash coming from that. Okay? Yep. And, and soot is just the unburned fuel, the black stuff that we used to see coming out of tailpipes. And that's supposed to be there. It is, but it's it's hydrocarbons. It's um, there. In soot has a couple co- components. It has organic compounds and inorganic compounds. The organic compounds in soot is um, the material that burns off. That's the fuel source. It it just when it's heated, it goes away completely. The inorganic material is the ash. It's pollen, soot. It's metal, right? It's iron, zinc, copper. It's those kinds of materials uh, that are stored and left behind. So. In the ash versus soot debate, how does the DPF know what it is that's clogging up those little channels with inside the substrate? All it knows is you see it sees a pressure differential, higher back pressure than normal. It initiates a regen. I, I would guess there gets to a point where a regen is not going to be effective to burn off all the contaminants that are in there because it takes care of the soot. We understand that. But the ash is non-combustible, it stays there. So at, at what point do you know your regens are no longer working because you've got uh, a higher ash or, yeah, ash buildup than soot? Uh, the, I mean, for us, the easiest way to tell if, it's, if your DPF's having issues with soot or with ash would be how many times the system's regenerating. Is it every day, every week, every month? If it's loaded with soot, a simple regen should take care of oxidizing the soot. Yep. If it's loaded with ash, you'll see more frequent regens because the prefer, prefer, pressure differential does not decrease. So if you keep having those frequent regens, um, the, the reality quickly would be that it's loaded with ash. And that's when it's time to clean it and service it. Correct. Yeah, so most, most DPFs, uh, just say a 12-liter engine, the volumetric size of, a, of the diesel particulate filter is 28 to 32 liters. Um, if you, over time, over 10,000 miles, 20,000 miles, 40,000 miles, you're adding a half an inch each time, an inch, two inch, three inch, you're lowering the volumetric efficiency of the filter, which then increases back pressure. So it'll, we'll talk, or when we talk about the, the cleaning cycles and, and why proactive is better, this, this all ties into um, how to make the filter system last longer. We're talking with uh, Steve Hoke and Steve Stratton, a.k.a. Junior, of uh, Diesel Emission Service. We're uh, talking about DPF cleaning, DPF service, DPF function, DPF operation. When we come back after the break, we'll get into some of the cleaning solutions. I'm Jim Park. This is HDT Talks Trucking. Stay with us. HDT Talks Trucking is brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. HDTX is loaded with topical discussions and learning opportunities with some of the most innovative people in this business. HDTX 2021 takes place August 25th through August 27th at the Scottsdale McCormick Ranch in Scottsdale, Arizona. Managers of Class 7 and 8 fleets apply now to be our guest at HDTX 2021. Visit HeavyDutyTruckingExchange.com. We're back with Steve Hoke and Steve Stratton of Diesel Emission Service, talking about cleaning DPFs and servicing them now. 
It's impossible to say what a normal cleaning interval will be, service interval. What clues or what hints should a fleet be watching for when they uh, to know that it's time to take the thing off and do something with it? It depends. It depends on mileage or what their preventative maintenance is. Um, the biggest the biggest thing we see in fleets is that they've been staying with what the OEM say, which is between two hundred fifty and four hundred thousand miles or forty five hundred hours, whichever comes first. Um, it has been a moving number um, by different OEMs. It started up way higher. Some of them are starting to bring it down to a more reasonable number. But if you wait or you use those mileage numbers that the OEMs give, you will see increased back pressure, frequent regens, a decrease in fuel mileage, as well as you can cause potential engine issues uh, with the increased back pressure. Um, DES is a large DPF cleaning company. We have five locations that clean a lot of DPFs. Uh, we recommend um, between 50 and 70,000 miles, a thousand hours or once a year. And it's, it's the once a year is not done as a promo to get you to, to bring more stuff to us. The thousand hour or the, the once a year is more so that ash stays light, fluffy and easily removable out of the cell walls instead of getting hard centering and then making the filter volumetric efficient wise, not able to ever achieve back to the clean or the new standard or or as clean to that standard as we can. And the other thing we advise is anytime you have major engine repair, um, you should be cleaning the DPF. And I mean, to this day, you cannot believe how many shops we hear from that will actually in-frame a truck and then bring us a DPF 30 days later going, the DPF's plug, we don't understand. We just rebuilt the engine. It's like <laughs> you, you, you theoretically should have removed the DPF. Uh, we would have hoped that it would have been broken on a dyno. Um, so all that uh, before the ring seat or the, uh, the 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 fuel, the oil, the stuff that's leaving the engine doesn't go in and load the DPF or cause an issue with the DOC. But uh, that's that's kind of where we're at on the intervals. So basically, more frequent cleaning uh, allows a better clean of the DPF because that, like you said, the the ash doesn't become hard and sintered in the channels; it can be removed more easily. Correct. Yeah. The, okay. So the, what most people don't, I mean. Right. There, there is, there's a scientific, um, there's really cool technology inside the substrates, you know, to, uh, to most owner operators or fleets. It's like, it's just a part. It needs to work. I need to, to get it serviced or replaced and get back on the road. So I understand that the cell walls that the, the exhaust go through. So a wall flow filter are really cellulose sponge like, um, we have different thicknesses. We have different microns. We have different stuff, different size. And if you take if you take your garbage can and empty it every six months or or ten inches of water, it's really easy to do. You let that garbage can fill up to ninety five percent capacity. You've got the the risk of flooding. A human then can't pick it up because it's heavy. The DPF kind of works that way. The more frequent that you can deash it, um, because every time you're deashing it, you should be checking the health of the engine opacity wise. Mm-hmm. You should be knowing what the flow, you should be knowing the weight. You should actually keep a record of how much ash is coming out of these filters, um, to know if you have engine conditions. I mean, if you're, if you're pulling a thousand grams of ash out, you've got something going on in the engine. Uh, normal mileage numbers should never have that much ash. So there's, there's a lot of pinpointing or, or things to that, that the service numbers and the weights and flows can tell you about the, the condition of the engine and the condition of the filter. Under normal circumstances, I hate that word normal because it doesn't apply to trucking anywhere. 
but under normal circumstances, uh, how long should a DPF last or can a fleet expect a DPF to last before it has to be actually replaced? If they, if they clean it more frequently, will it last longer? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. If, you, if we kind of back up a little bit and think about it, the whole reason for cleaning the DPF is to decrease back pressure on the engine. An increased back pressure causes crankcase pressure, causes which which in turn causes oil leaks. It causes low boost pressure. It causes the engine to use more fuel, and inherently causes engine engine condition issues. Okay, so some manufacturers uh, say that the DPF can only be cleaned a few times, and that's absolutely true if you wait two hundred fifty to four hundred fifty thousand miles. Right. If you wait the time frame, if you wait that time frame, the ash is going to sit in that filter. It's going to harden. Right. Two hundred fifty to four hundred fifty thousand miles is two to four years. That's a long time for ash uh, to sit in that filter, baking away. Think about it. And, yeah. and ash is a byproduct of lube oil and fuel additives. Right. That's what we talked about a little bit ago. Yep. Lube oil is metallic based. It's iron, zinc, copper. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've watched Gold Rush. You've seen what happens to gold when you take a bunch of a pile of gold um, in a pan and heat it. Right? It, it bonds together. It centers together and makes one big gold bar. Well, ash in a DPF essentially does the same thing. So if you let the ash sit in the DPF for an extended period of time, and then say you have an engine condition that overheats the DPF, and it allows that metal base, that iron, zinc, or copper, to melt. It's going to effectively stick to the cell wall, creating restriction. The restriction changes the volumetric flow efficiency of the DPF, which that's what we call centering, right? And it's exceedingly difficult to remove. If you have a proactive approach, which is what we recommend, that uh, 50 to 70,000 miles, 1,000 hours, that 50 to 70,000 miles or 1,000 hours, if you look at 1,000 hours on an on-highway heavy-duty truck, that equates to 100,000 miles or one year of on-highway driving. Mm -hmm. If you take that approach, the DPF could last 800,000, a million miles. You, but you have to have a, a proactive cleaning approach to, to increase the life expectancy of the DPF. And, and it should, if, if everything's done properly, it should last 800 to a million miles. I can give you some examples. We started retrofitting in California in 2006. Um, so what is that? 15 years. Um, those same filters are cleaned every year and still in service today. Well, I can, I can hear fleets out there now saying, yeah, but that costs money. It'll be downtime for my trucks. I can't do that. Is that a realistic reason to be ignoring the problem? Well, it's a realistic reason, right? I buy a truck because I want it to work. Yep. Um, the, the, the other side of that is what is the best solution for that, which would, could be um, having swing filters. You can call them reman, you can call them new, whatever you want to call it, but a swing filter just to minimize downtime. Um, we've, we've worked on a cleaning solution that really they can do the service in the same time that the truck's down in a couple hours for a PM service. So that's, that's a, a, a new thing coming to market right now. Um, but yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, we own our own vehicles. We have locations and I, when I buy hundred thousand dollar service trucks, I expect them to be working. I don't want to hear that they're down and we have four diesels with it do have regen issues every now and then. And we we're just like a fleet when it comes to that, we want them working. We want to be billing time with those. And, um, so I couldn't even imagine the large fleets, um, 
when you talk about percentage of vehicles with after-treatment issues, uh, what this is doing to their bottom line. But a more proactive approach to it, where you can schedule those sorts of events, uh, it's going to cause an awful lot less trouble than it would if it happens on the side of the road and you got to tow it in somewhere. We have seen many, many, and I'm not going to throw how many minis, but we've seen many fleets with 15 trucks and above buy our cleaning systems for the sole purpose of uh, being proactive and minimizing their downtime. A, no one works on the same schedule that you will work, right? If you're a, a shop in Iowa and your truck's down on a Friday, you don't want to pay overtime to take it to a dealership. You don't, you want to do stuff in-house. So by them being able to, to buy cleaning packages to do their own cleaning in-house uh, limits that. And it's, it's definitely a, uh, the ROI is very, very short. Okay. So just while we're on the ROI question, uh, Buying your own cleaning equipment versus sending it out to a, a shop to have it done. Is there a fleet size or a magic number that says this is uh, going to pay for itself over time? I don't know how I would relate that to the fleet size. Um, just just as a, a hypothetical, uh, $50,000 spent on DPF cleaning equipment. If you cleaned three filters a week and associated a $350 value um, I think your ROI is like nine months. Wow. Okay, that's uh, that's pretty clear. Uh, just to just to kind of reiterate a little bit, think about the DPF cleaning costing three hundred and fifty dollars. Right? Fleets don't want to spend three hundred and fifty dollars to have a DPF cleaned. Okay, but do they want to spend fifteen hundred dollars on a tow bill and three days in the shop when they can schedule the DPF cleaning on their own time with their own machines? They're going to potentially save exponentially on the other end. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. A lot of fleets do too, I guess, but maybe not enough yet. Uh, let's talk about the cleaning process itself then. What happens? What happens? So it's a touchy subject to some, as there's many ways shops clean filters. Uh, there's manual DPF cleaning machines, there's semi-automated machines, there's ultrasonic, there's aqueous, um, all will work if a process is followed that can be repeated on every filter. As a company, um, we manufacture bake and blow. We manufacture aqueous. Um, we believe in teaching and training an eight-step process that is repeatable um, no matter what brand of equipment you have, which, which it all involves inspection, documenting, weight test, flow test, wire test, oxidizing the soot, which would be baking, uh, blowing it out, which would be um, through a pulse machine, an air knife machine, or an aqueous machine. And then when that service is done, back re-verifying. So did I, how much weight did I lose? How much did I improve the flow? Um, and then what is the physical condition? Um, even though the, the inlet and the outlet look absolutely beautiful, pristine eggshell on cordurite filter, um, how do I know what's happening inside? Believe it or not, a 35-cent piece of TIG wire can tell you more in your fingertips than pretty much all the machines that are available on the market. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with, I mean, you know, when you talk about cleaning machines, it's, there's a lot of different sizes, a lot of different markets off highway requires some, some different stuff on highway, heavy duty, medium duty, light duty. They're all different shapes, sizes. Um, you know, you've heard of a, a Detroit one box, which has the DOC, the DPF and the SCR, um, all the way to like a GMC, a 2012 GMC is nine foot long. So they won't fit in everybody's machines. Um, so the, the correct system would be what fits the customer's needs. I mean, if they have a fleet that is all 
with nine foot long filters, well, then you need to buy a machine that can handle whether it's aqueous uh, and then be able to dry it so you can have your repeatable uh, result. It, it, are all the cleaning processes equally effective at the end of the day, providing nothing really bad has happened to the DPF? So the answer would be they should be, right? Um, okay. Obviously, I don't have all everybody's systems. Um, the ones that rely on humans um, are never the exact same. So it would be, what did your operator, it was? how did he do, right? That's why for us, we teach, we, we preach a system that really just has definables. It doesn't tell you that the gray machine's better than the red machine, the the yellow machine's better than something else. It's just you decide by budget, by use, by what you need, what's the best product. Then you say, um, how do I repeat that process with that system? And theoretically, um, there are certain machines like Aqueous can't be used for retrofit because of the way the matting was done. But all the OEM systems, Aqueous works wonderful. Um, you know, ovens to bake them, not all DPFs or SCRs can fit inside of an oven. So therefore, Aqueous might be better in that application. Um, I'll throw a cheap plug. If anybody wants to look at different systems, they can go to www.filtertherm.com and see some cool stuff. Okay, so it's it's fair to say then that the fleet really has to take a look at its operation and decide what works best for it. But in doing so, if you decide to take on this this challenge, are there any like consequences like environmental disposal of the material you get out of the DPF? Is there anything you have to do uh, on, on that end to get compliant? Um, first, I'm going to say absolutely because we're headquartered in California and even Kleenexes are thrown as hazardous material. <laughs> uh, but uh, God bless in, California. Yeah. In the wonderful state of Oregon, um, the ash that leaves the DPF is not classified as hazardous. So theoretically be thrown in a garbage can. Our company has a mission statement that everything goes as hazmat um, just because we know what's in the ash. Yeah. Um, so yeah, every state is different. I mean, there are states that uh, can put water, filtered water back down into their system. Um, so it would be, if you're a fleet and wanting to, to talk about it, pick, pick your vendors, talk, Talk to more than one. Um, talk to a couple of them and get them to, you know, tell them what you what your fleet size is, what your um, ambitions are to do in house, and what your resources are, what state you're in, and then have them make proposals because really that's what the cleaning company should be doing. Um, there is no one size fits all. Okay, let's talk about a specific cleaning uh, incident here. Not incident um, situation. You have a catastrophic failure. Your engine starts throwing tons of oil or coolant down into the after-treatment system. Can it be salvaged uh, if that happens? Or maybe oil leaks and coolant leaks over a prolonged period of time, minor leaks that you don't really notice? Uh, is that a, a, a mission killer or can you salvage the DPF after that? I'm going to take this one, Steve. <laughs> Sound good? I'm going to take this one because I know what you're going to say. Um, so... it. it there are a few different things to think about if you have a major engine failure. Anytime there's a major engine failure, you should have the DPF serviced and cleaned. And our process, our DPF cleaning cleaning process and, and the machines we use, FilterTherm, uh, FilterTherm has a dryout cycle. The dryout cycle is, is specific to uh, VOCs or volatile organic compounds. It's not hot enough to ignite the source if it's oil, fuel, or coolant. It's not hot enough to ignite it, but it is 
hot enough to dry it out. Now, we always recommend a filter that comes in and it's wet with coolant oil or fuel. It goes through a dry out cycle. We don't recommend replacing it automatically. The reason for that is, is there's no way to know without putting it on the truck and running a regen and looking at the numbers to determine if it's going to work or not. Right? The regen temperatures, the in inlet deep DOC, the outlet DOC, and the outlet DPF are going to tell us everything we need to know if that uh, DOC catalyst is oxidizing the hydrocarbons to create heat for regen. The DPF, again, it's a dumb device catching soot. So it should be cleanable if you can get it dry and you can get the oil or fuel out and even coolant. The DOC, on the other hand, it could run into a situation where it poisons the catalyst and it may not have an efficient region, right? So there are some machines that offer that, and there's some processes that say, hey, if you have a DPF that's oil, fuel, or coolant soaked, just replace it. We don't necessarily go that route. So it's not automatically a death sentence for the DPF? No. Okay. So, so now I'm going to throw my two cents in, because I agree, I agree with what he says, but I'm going to make it even a little simpler. On... On vehicles that have a diesel oxidation catalyst and then a diesel particulate filter, not all, but most that have a DOC, the DPF is not catalyzed. So if the DPF is not catalyzed, we're therefore not worrying about fouling the catalyst. So you can do, you can remove the oil, you can remove the coolant, you can remove the stuff that you guys were talking about. It's just a, a cordurite substrate um, that's breathing, doing what it's supposed to do to catch ash. Um I have not seen any DOC that has made it through a turbo failure, an EGR cooler leak. Um, it poisons the catalyst. If it wipes out, even even if the coolant that's that's going through the exhaust system and goes across the DOC, even if it even if it fouls half the DOC, it's lowered the ability to create the heat that it needs to do. That's why Junior made the comment about having the correct laptop to see what your inlet DOC temp, outlet DOC temp, and then outlet DPF temp is. Um, so I, we hear a lot in the cleaning that, yeah, we clean oil soaked filters. Don't you? And the answer is, well, it depends, depends on if they're non-catalyzed. I would not waste a customer's time trying to clean an oil soaked filter on a, on a filter that I knew was catalyzed. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, and that's a good segue into our next segment here. Uh, what about some of the other components of the after treatment system, as far as cleaning goes and service, EGR valves? You've talked about the DOC a little bit uh, and SCR. What are our options there? So with the EGR valves, um, its job is to lower NOx, right? A byproduct of, of lowering NOx is, again, it's using fuel. It's lowering cylinder temperatures. A byproduct of its job is soot production, which could load the intake, creating restrictions as well as high temperatures. Diesel engines, again, are, are big air pumps. They need good air in. So if it's restricted, if we restrict the air in, it's going to change the air fuel ratio, causing high opacity and in turn prematurely loading a DPF. Also damaging the uh, overloading the EGR cooler. An overloaded EGR cooler overheats, cracks internally, and then now we have coolant in our DPF and DOC. So um Proactive, a proactive approach and maintenance on EGR systems um, is, is definitely available. Can they be cleaned as well? Or should they be cleaned periodically? Yeah. So our shops actually, 
there are lots of companies across the U.S. that offer um, decarbonizing of the engines through the intake system. Uh, we offer that service as well. We sell the machines. Uh, very simple um, hookup. Um, we, we basically hook up the intake system, um, run the engine. Junior can talk more about the, the, the actual process as he trains all of our techs. But um, we have seen great results with the machines we sell, and we know that there's companies across the U.S., especially on the East Coast. Uh, they're doing it with hydrogen. Ours uses a, a biodegradable chemical to run the, to run the cleaning process. Um, but the vehicles, the coking that's built in the EGR system, the EGR stream, um, it's amazing what it does. It's a very quick uh, service. It, we try to get our, to our customers. We have them plan it when an oil change is due, so that way we're not doing an extra oil change. Um, uh, maybe, Junior, you want to talk about how it actually works? Yeah, so absolutely. So the EGR cleaning machine is fairly straightforward. Its job is to clean the intake, the exhaust, and all of the EGR components in the system. It also cleans the um, VGT turbo, right? A, a VGT turbo is essentially part of the EGR system. So if the way the machine works is you get the engine to operating temperature, we know the EGR loads with soot. We know it loads with the cooler loads with soot and the, the entire intake track all the way down to the injectors. If, if we can remove that carbon, remove that soot buildup, clean the injector tips, we're going to get a more uh, cleaner or a better atomized burn during the combustion process. And if our EGR, our VGT turbo is operating properly, we're going to get better turbo actuation, better response, more quick boost, better air fuel ratio. And this particular system, you hook it up to the intake. You, again, like Steve said, you run the solution through the intake side. It removes all the carbon. Uh, it pushes all that stuff into the cylinder. It goes down into the to the outlet pipe. We actually remove the DPF so it doesn't get into the DOC and the DPF um, at, while we're running this process. But you do that on the intake side and then you do it on the outlet side or exhaust side. And uh, yeah, it cleans the entire engine hmm. internally. We were very skeptical uh, for many, many years and finally, Junior talked us into buying one, trying it on a machine, and the results were so good that we bought them for all of our facilities. We actually took a uh, we took a truck that we knew had a problem with EGR, and we took a boroscope, put it down in the EGR system, looked at the face, took pictures of the EGR cooler. We seen that it was restricted. We ran the machine on the truck. We reevaluated that EGR cooler, and it was it was clean. So we were we were sold. That's a solution probably not too many fleets know about at this stage of the game. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're just as skeptical as we were, right? It's it's snake oil, anything you hook up to an intake hose, how does it clean the carbon inside my engine? Where does it go? I mean, I was that person as well. I was, yeah. you know, I was that way on the uh, HD Power Smoke when Junior came to us and said, I want to buy these for all our facilities. And I said, how much are they? And he told me, I went, no, why, why would we do that? We've been in business 42 years. And they happen to have one of our customers come in, um, great customer we've known for years, uh, uh, a, a retrofit DPF on the truck that was having a plugging issue, drove the truck up from out of town. Um, they happened to be here with a test machine. They went and hooked it up in like four minutes. The owner, myself, the owner of the truck, myself, Junior, and the gentleman from uh, Redline uh, Detection were here. And when they started the truck up, uh, there was smoke bellowing out of the air-to-air -air cooler, 
um, like three of the exhaust clamps, the wastegate on the turbo, and the operator said, can you get all this stuff fixed today? And we said, absolutely. And the gentleman from Redline says, so how many machines are you ordering today? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. Yep. Uh, Yep. Last part of the system then, before everything goes out the tailpipe, the SCR. Uh, Anything typically go wrong there that needs uh, some care and attention? Uh, Yes, actually. So there's a few things. Generally, and I'll use this term loosely, Um, the SCR catalyst is fairly straightforward in what it's doing. The most common failure with an SCR is the sensor failure. Okay. Uh, Knox, Knox sensors, they have a shelf life. It's about 250,000 miles. So when we see trucks, 250, 350,000 miles with an SCR conversion efficiency code, um, there's a good chance it's got a a Knox sensor issue. Uh, one of the other issues is contaminated def. Okay, uh, operators that aren't quite paying attention and and maybe put some window cleaning fluid or diesel in the DEF tank or uh, you name it, water. We've, we've seen all well, kinds of things. Let's not blame the operator. Let's say that they got it from a truck stop out off Highway 10 and it was contaminated. That's possible. <laughs> yes, those are all possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So And then also engine malfunction. So if, if an engine loses an engine, uh, uh, loses an EGR cooler and the coolant gets past the DPF, the DOC DPF and into the SCR catalyst, it, it absolutely could poison it. So, Would the coolant make it past the DPF? Oh, it's, it's coolant is water, right? It can go, it's going to go, it's going to take the least path of resistance with pressure. So it'll yep. go everywhere. Okay. Interesting. So I'll, I'll bet there's not a lot of fleets who are aware that the sensors have a shelf life. And if you're pushing 250,000 miles and you're having SCR problems, maybe it's just the sensor. It very well could be a sensor, but I will always recommend you use the OEM or use a diagnostic uh, troubleshooting tree to verify sure. that it's a sensor failure. Of course. What causes all the the atomization issues on the dosers that we see the, the mixing tubes loaded with the white cake, cocaine-looking stuff? Is that from overdosing? It's from overdosing. It's from low temperatures. It's from a bad DEF injector. It's from low DEF pressure. There's all sorts of things that come into play there. So there are physical problems that can happen too. Th- there are, but they're, it's generally due to a duty cycle issue or a lack of maintenance type scenario. So with, with the SCR catalyst, or with, excuse me, with the SCR system, there's, there's actually a filter on the SCR def, uh, dosing pump that should be serviced. We recommend servicing that filter once a year. If you don't service that filter and say the truck sits for an extended period of time, that DEF fluid could crystallize and create restriction. If it creates restriction, it's going to have low pressure. It's not going to dose properly. You're going to get SCR conversion efficiency codes. You're going to get a DEF doser that loads prematurely. It's all trickle-down effect. So again, it's a, it's a staying on top of the maintenance question here more than anything else. Proactive is key. Yeah. Okay, one more question before we wrap things up here. It's been a great discussion. That's why I've let it go on so long. I really didn't want to try and cut this down. Uh, and I'll bet you see a lot of this. Buying used trucks, what kind of warning would you have for anybody who's uh, who's buying a used truck as far as the after-treatment system is concerned? Should you just say, to heck with it, I'm going to bring it in and clean it and start fresh or, or trust that the thing is going to last you a, a period before it gives you any trouble? 
Great question. Uh, we talked to lots of used truck sales dealerships nationwide, and the answer seems to be for them, as long as the check engine light isn't on, uh, they don't really do anything to the truck um, other than maybe just a normal PM, make sure tires are good. Um, if it does have a light on, they'll deal with it really as cheaply as possible just to maximize profits. We've been trying to change that tone um, really as a sales advantage to the, the truck dealerships, um, the used dealerships that we deal with on finding a local DPF cleaner, paying the money up front to have it cleaned, and then you can actually advertise it that, you know, the after-treatment system is already cleaned, ready to go. Here's a cleaning report. And it, it's, I mean, for the money spent, it should be a great investment. Plus, depending on their local uh, DPF cleaning partner that they choose, it could be a great way for both companies to uh, to do it. There are some places that we offer it at a very, very discounted rate because then anybody that buys trucks or fleets that they talk to, they send them our way for, for more business. So um, need to find a partner, need to find someone that can, can really take care of or deal with more after-treatment stuff if that's not your specialty. Okay. I think we've covered just about everything we can on this. Uh, from either of you, just a couple of final words before we part company here. Be proactive. First, first things first, uh, take a proactive approach. Uh, in nature, just in general, humans are reactive. We don't check our air pressure in our tires until it's real cold or that tire light comes on on the dash. Um, if you're starting to see those lights and you have after-treatment questions or concerns, you can always reach out to us and we'll help you. But uh, uh, find somebody that you can trust to work on your trucks uh, and help you through those issues. I'll agree with that. I'll, I'll throw in a little more too. We do after-treatment training classes um, in partnership with Diesel Laptops. So they're nationwide. We do all the ones on the West Coast. Um, you cannot believe how many owner-operators come to these classes now just to understand the after-treatment system. Um, so educate yourself, your fleet managers, your technicians, educate yourself. Find a good partner in your home area as far as for the DPF maintenance side. If you If you have enough vehicles and want to talk about buying cleaning equipment, call the different DPF cleaning manufacturers. Um, education is everything, right? This this should not be a mystery. Not after 15 years. No, sir. <laughs> We've been talking with Steve Hoke, the president of Diesel Emissions Service, and Steve Jr. Stratton, the uh, warranty and training manager at Diesel uh, Emissions Services. Gentlemen, thanks so much for uh, an hour of your time today. It's a really informative discussion. I'm glad we had it. Us too. Thank you so much, Jim. You and your magazine do such a great job keeping people informed. Yeah, thanks, Jim. We appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. The check's in the mail on that one. Appreciate it. <laughs> HTT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HTTX is a networking event for fleets and suppliers that opens doors to long and beneficial business relationships. Join us August 25th through August 27th in Scottsdale, Arizona for HDTX 2021. To view this year's agenda and apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021, visit heavydutytruckingexchange.com. This episode kicks off the sixth season of HDT Talks Trucking. We've got five other great episodes this season, including Carrier Self-Defense, a do-it-yourself strategy for staying out of court, and a look at the autonomous truck developer who's taking a path less traveled to get to the finish line. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please spread the word on social media and give us a review and a rating if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. If there's something you'd like us to cover on HDT Talks Trucking, email me at jpark at truckinginfo.com. 
HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. <music>